I'm Jara Sastrawan. I am the SIAC Postgraduate Coordinator. And today I'm talking with a visiting scholar and we're going to be discussing the work that he's been doing here, particularly his study of a recent widely acclaimed Archinese novel, Kura Kura Prajangut, The Bearded Turtle. So I would like to introduce Dr. Jesse Grayman from the University of Auckland. Jesse, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Jara. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd also just like to quickly thank the Southeast Asia Center for hosting me. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in development studies at the University of Auckland. My background is in anthropology and public health. I have prior training in Southeast Asian studies at the master's level, where I studied Indonesian language, literature, and history, but only for about two years. And it's been a really long time. So I'm really grateful for this time and space that the fellowship here in Sydney has offered. This has been really wonderful. We're very glad to have you, and we're really excited to hear about some of the things that you've been reading and finding out about this work. But to start with a bit of context, you work a lot in Aceh, and this is an Achenese novel. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to find this novel, how you came to know of its author, and what prompted you to decide to spend a not inconsiderable amount of time that's right. uh, reading and, and studying this particular work? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. My PhD research uh, was in Aceh. I originally thought I would do a sort of a normative medical anthropological study of infectious disease and poverty in East Java. But after the tsunami, at the end of 2004, I decided to engage with a rather recent critical literature in anthropological scholarship about humanitarianism, and I figured Aceh would be a terrific opportunity to go and observe the situation on the ground. If you recall, the province was devastated by the tsunami. It was currently in the middle of a war, a separatist war with the Indonesian government, and suddenly the province was flooded with hundreds of international organizations many of whom were very unfamiliar with the prior context of, of war and suffering. And then with this new layer of tsunami and earthquake suffering, I figured they will need people who speak Baha's Indonesia. Uh, this is an opportunity for me to at least go and see what's happening. So off I went for a summer at least to just go check it out. I was sponsored by an international organization called the International Organization for Migration, IOM and they entered into a collaboration with Harvard Medical School where my advisor was based. And so that afforded an internship opportunity and an official sponsorship. And very quickly, I got swept up in all of the efforts that were ongoing. The peace agreement followed eight months after the tsunami. So many humanitarian actors on the ground quickly shifted their work to post-conflict recovery in addition to post-tsunami recovery. And my organization, IOM, was really one of the leading organizations at the beginning of the peace process involved with the reintegration of ex-combatants and amnesty prisoners and so on. And my work very quickly shifted from examining the health situation of tsunami survivors to looking at the mental health situation of conflict survivors. That's the work that brought me to Aceh, but then I still needed to define my own PhD research project. And I quickly latched onto this idea of the work of Indonesian humanitarians that were working for all of these large international organizations. They brought local expertise, education, knowledge of English, and so they were the perfect brokers to help link up all these new international arrivals who had really no knowledge of the area with the local situation. And that includes being able to speak with survivors of the tsunami, but also how to negotiate with military and police officials, local government, uh, national government, and so on. 
I was really intrigued by the sort of mediating role that Indonesian humanitarians were playing. And my ethnography ended up being about that. The humanitarian encounter only lasted about five years. It was about five years of reconstruction, and then most organizations packed up and left in 2009. And my ongoing research since then has been to look at, okay, what happened after that? And a look at Indonesian humanitarians that used to have very well-paid jobs with these international organizations quickly turned into a, a follow-up study of Indonesian civil society actors and activists. Many of the people who were able to get jobs with these organizations already had previous experience working for NGOs, human rights, democratization, anti-violence, uh, referendum issues during the time of the conflict. And they were very well versed in how to seek donor support, how to wage a campaign with very little donor support, uh, and how to work in settings of violence and lack of resources and lack of communication. These were the folks that were also very well placed to be involved in the humanitarian intervention after the tsunami. And so I was very interested to say, okay, now, now what happens to civil society now that all the money and all the international organizations are gone? It is in this context that I met the author of the book that I'm going to talk about here. His name is Azhari Ayub. He's the founder of a local NGO in Aceh called the Tikar Pandan Community or Comunitas Tikar Pandan. The organization called or considered themselves as cultural activists during the referendum era. These were all college students at the time. And instead of uh, waging a battle for human rights or anti-violence or medical care uh, or democratization or explicit support for the referendum, they decided to wage their critique using the idiom of culture, which was a really clever way to uh, get past the censors and the police and the military and to wage some subtle uh, and tricky critiques along the way with some good humor all along the way. During my years working in Aceh, as I got to know Azhari, I have always known that he's been working on this book. He started writing it in 2006, and it finally was published in 2018. Those years were not in vain. It's a very long novel. It's 960 pages. He's been working really hard. So I've always been hearing about the progress of this novel as I got to know him and his organization, and now the book was finally published. I now have a full-time academic job in Auckland, and I was just always wondering, where am I ever going to find the time to follow up and read this? It's a really good fit that follows up upon prior work that I did in an anthropological mode or even in a development studies mode concerned with humanitarian organizations and civil society. But rarely do folks in that stream of anthropology or in development studies get to engage uh, in, on the humanities side of, of these conversations and do a deep dive into Achenese literature. Sorry for that very long-winded answer, no, that's but, great. but that's the background that brings me here. It really, it really gives a sense of, of how you've come to this particular work and also highlights the importance, but also the difficulty, of moving from a social scientific or a discipline that focuses a lot on practical solutions and being yeah. very embedded on the ground yeah. with cultural studies and humanities studies that at times seem a little bit removed from everyday life. What's interesting to me is that it's not just your your personal interest that led you here, but you're following the lead of these organizations yep. of Tikar Pandan and people who see that just as much as human rights, health and political change, culture is a vehicle and, and an important field in which change can be sought. So I wanted to ask, well, firstly, what is this book about? What's the book? doing in that context? If we're looking at the author's work as, we might say, a continuation of or, or part of that cultural project that was begun in the 2000s, 
How does the book fit into that? What do you think it's trying to achieve? Uh, the book is organized into three sections, but by far the largest section of the book, you know, about 650 pages, is a is a reimagining of pre-colonial Aceh. As Hari describes the book as a pirate novel, it's a story of pirates and spies, power games between uh, kings along the straits. Aceh was a center of trade across the cosmopolitan Indian Ocean and South China Sea's world. It, it gained its wealth through the control of that trade through the straits, a very strategic location. The first book of, of this long novel takes place roughly 40, 50 year period, right on the cusp of colonial arrival and domination through the eyes of pirates that have a interest in revenge against the current reigning sultan of not Aceh in this book, it's called the Kingdom of Lamuri. The author, Azhari, refuses to call this a historical novel. He says, this is not historical fiction, even though I'm using historical reference points in the organization of the story that I'm trying to tell. Rather than produce a historical fiction that is meant to maybe comment upon official history or offer a counter-official history of some kind, he takes the position that all histories are fictions, all histories are written by those who uh, have an interest in controlling the narrative. It is an obfuscation at the outset to write an official history of anything. Therefore, my job is to obfuscate history even further. And that is a bit of what's happening in the reimagining of, of the history of Aceh here. His main reference point uh, when, when he talks about this is the ways in which the Suharto's New Order government abused history and storytelling and insisted on a single master narrative that didn't allow room for contestation or, or resistance of any kind, while also completely ignoring facts. One of the reasons why I think this book is so long is to sort of present an explosion of alternative narratives, alternative stories, to explore the ways in which the facts of history get told and retold again and again not just by a set of actors in one time and place, but over time, over generations. The second book is the diary of a Dutch psychiatrist who shows up in Lemuri to investigate a series of serial killings perpetrated by seemingly random uh, Lemuri people. And this is a parallel to the Aceh murders that followed the conclusion of the Aceh War after the Dutch finally supposedly pacified Aceh after a 30-long war. So the Dutch government in this book sends a psychiatrist to investigate what is motivating this series of serial killings that is terrifying the Dutch colonial government. And then he gets drawn into this conspiracy of the bearded turtle, which gets elaborated creatively in the first book and then has new appearances, new resonances, new echoes during this Dutch era. And then the final book is a collection of fragments put together by an archivist in Holland, who is of Achenese descent. And the first two books in this novel are his inheritance from his uncle in Aceh, who was executed for his role in the Darul Islam rebellion, which was not the Free Aceh movement, but another rebellion after Indonesia's independence. And the uncle tells his nephew before he was executed in 1962, I can read the first book, it's written in Malayu, but I can't read the second book, it's written in Dutch. Maybe this will be useful for you. He actually ignores it for three decades. But then after the uh, September 11th attacks and, and the war on terror begins, 
he finds a particular inspiration to go back, reread these books, and then accumulate other documents in the archives in Holland, which then are fragments which speak to various events in the first two books. And that then is the compiled volume of this huge, long book, Koro Koro Brjangu. That sounds absolutely fascinating. What really grabs me about the things that you've been describing in the novel as you describe it is this conviction that the historical process is something that isn't a scientific procedure so much as a sort of really complicated encounter of various different kinds. There's the encounter of the archivist with the documents and the status of those documents. They are archives, but they're not merely archives. They're also inheritance. Mm -hmm. They're also a sort of tradition, but a tradition that isn't smooth and linear and comfortable, but one that's full of misunderstanding, documents that can't be read, foreign languages, and the archivist's own dual identity at the end, trying to sort through these different fragments, as you say, right? There must be a reason why the, the final part of the book is in that form. From the perspective of the present, looking back, tradition doesn't form itself, or history doesn't form itself as a nice, clean, straightforward A causes B causes C situation as perhaps official government histories might have liked to show it. And in doing so, deviated from or misrepresented the way things really are. But rather, they come to us as this sort of bits and pieces that we have to fit together and certain bits talk to other bits and certain bits don't. There are so many different aspects of of what you've described that I want to know more about. But let me first ask about Azhari's claim that this is not a historical novel. For historical fiction to make sense as a category, it seems to be opposed to historical fact. Historical fact is what really happened. Historical fiction is made up things that happened but placed in a realistic historical context. And what Azhari is doing is by presenting, one might think that it was alternative history. Because as you say, he uses alternative place names, so he mm. calls Aceh Lamuri, for example. So in a way, it sounds a bit like those alternative novels where it's like, imagine if history had turned out this way. But from what you said, it doesn't sound like that's quite it. It's a more radical claim than that, it seems. He's saying, this is how we deal with the past. This is it. This is how it works. When we think about the past, we think about our traditions, we think about who we are, where we came from. This is all there is. There is no more authoritative, legitimate position. And even the claim to authority can be a bit suspect. Do you think that's that's a fair assessment, that we shouldn't see this novel as being counterfactual history or alternative history or fictionalized history, because it implies that there is an authoritative history? I think you are right. So... One thing that I started paying attention to once I started reading the second book, The Dutch Psychiatrist's Diary, was the shift in language, the shift in fidelity to what we think of as the authentic historical sources in the archive. So, for instance, it started with an identification of how how Azhari is using language. And it starts with a very simple point that in book one, the pre-colonial stories, there are no Dutch and English words. The book is written in beautiful Bahasa Indonesia. But I was sitting with a dictionary next to me the entire time because he's reaching back to a lot of old Malay 
terminology that is not usually used in contemporary Baha'is Indonesia today. And like I said before, there's also just this explosion of narrative. There's story upon story, and it's story embedded within other stories, and multiple versions of same stories that get told by different characters with wildly different characterizations and outcomes. So already there's a comment on archives and competing narratives right there. But when we arrive at the Dutch Psychiatrist's Diary, we already see not just a change in the language. We, you know, we see words like kantor for existence, which comes from Dutch, the word for office. And we see other borrowings maybe from English. And, and we not only see that, but we also see a more careful organization of the presentation of the stories. The diary still contains many stories embedded in with more stories. Azhari hasn't abandoned that technique, but the embedded stories have headers and titles. And then, in terms of what we might think of as fidelity to historical events that we read in our normative history books, the place is still called Lemuri, but the Zealanders are no Dutch. It is now very much a colonial government. We hear about Batavia. We hear about other places in the, in the colony. We read a lot about the layout of the city of Kutaraja, uh, or Bandar Lemuri, which is now today's Banda Aceh. And for anyone who's lived in Banda Aceh, He's taking us through a very accurate map of the city, describing the bridges here, the great mosque is here, the Dutch colonial offices are here, and so on. It's exactly as anyone who lives in Banda Aceh knows it. Furthermore, the events that are recounted during these uh, serial killings, the murders, take place in locations that are basically in the history books, and Azhari is just changing the names of places by just one letter. And that could just be a, a spelling convention in, in many cases. It's almost like the recreation or the retelling of Lemuria's history begins to approach what we might expect in, in an asymptotic kind of fashion. It's the only word I've been able to think of. From the florid effusion of multiple narratives and voices in the first book to a more organized uh, version of events that feels a little bit closer to what we know about Achenese history, but nonetheless contains a little bit of slippery differences here and there. And then of course, I haven't even touched upon the magical realism, right? The psychiatrist begins to be infected or taken with this bearded turtle conspiracy, and he feels his soul being sucked into the pages of his diary. As the diary continues, his, his sanity appears to be called into question, and, and he starts seeing and hearing things that uh, have echoes in the, in the first book. I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but this question of archives and who gets to determine the archival narrative of what happened is, is very much on Azhari's mind. And there's a remixing of history, but there's also comment about how some narratives come to supplant other narratives, how they gain their authority, how they gain their force, how some versions of history, how some explanatory models about what happened appear to take over other ideas that may have been circulating at the time. So when we read our normative Achenese histories, we hear about the Holy War. The war lasted for 30 years, and then the Aceh killings persisted because of this idea of um, people in Aceh were possessed by the, the Hikayat Prang Sabil, the, 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 the song of the Holy War, that possessed people and, and persuaded them to uh, go on these suicide killings because it would bring them to a paradise in heaven. But Azhari is offering other other versions, other motives that don't quite make the final cut in the finalization of an archive. And he's sort of showing how that process may have unfolded. It sounds to me as though it's the process or the practice 
of archiving, of doing history, of finding out the past and of telling it. That is really one of the main things of interest. The stories are important and there are lots of them and they, they make up what is engaging about the book. But behind that is the, exactly, as you say, the question of how do things make the cut or not make the cut for the archive? What sorts of stories get authorized and what sorts of stories don't get authorized? This book is all in Bahasa Indonesia and standard Indonesian, but you've pointed out that there are these very strong linguistic differences, and it made me think of the idea of translation. Mm -hmm. It seems to be implied in the logic of the novel that these are translated texts. Absolutely. Or that they are in some way adapted, but as anyone who's thought about translation for a little while knows, there's no such thing as direct translation. And what we do or what historians do implicitly sort of assumes that there is or that it's achievable because what you want to do is assimilate a whole bunch of different very diverse sources into a coherent narrative that you can claim is the closest approximation to what really happened. Yep. And it seems as though what the novel is doing by seeking to express the peculiarity of the Malay style of pre-colonial writing, the peculiarity of the Dutch style of official writing, the style of 21st century Indonesians or diaspora Indonesians, mm -hmm. the way that they now interact with information and, and express it, seems to be, again, questioning or bringing into light the difficulties of this idea of being able to unify or to, to even make congruent all these different styles of expressing your knowledge about the past. I don't want to speak too much for Azhari. However, I do think he's really interested in letting those tensions reveal themselves and then let those tensions remain in the text. However, uh, remember, the archivist is, is a character and the archivist describes his process. He says, so I received uh, a text in Old Malayu and it's written in Jawi script. And, and he said, I transliterated this, but it is in Bahasa Malayu. And I received the diary in Dutch, and I translated this into Bahasa Indonesia. And then in the Book of Fragments, some of those fragments were originally in French. Some were written by Indonesians, contemporary Indonesians. And so you've got, you've got a couple of conflicting sources there uh, with, with original languages. And there is a lot of meta-commentary like this by both the archivist character in this book who, who puts the overall manuscript together, but also many of the other characters in the book have digressions in which they think about storytelling. When the Dutch diarist, you know, when the psychiatrist feels himself being sucked into the page, he's becoming the words, he's being drawn into the text himself. There's something there to be explored further about the relationship between one's narrative and experience and how they put it into words uh, on paper. The main narrator in the epic first book is also compiling. Many of the chapters are written in the narrator's voice, but he is also recounting many narratives from other people. And even in one chapter, he's just reproducing the text of a spy, uh, a female spy from the South China Seas, and that's written in a very different voice. Many of the chapters are presented as conversations with the narrator, talking to a person who's telling a very, very long story. Uh, so there's definitely a multiplicity of voices. They are delivering competing 
narratives and versions of events. Um, they are speaking and writing in different styles. And I think they are meant to all sit together uncomfortably. I can imagine that a literary critic, particularly one who's interested and sympathetic to post-structuralist and post-modernist narratives, would have a field day with this book. Yeah. I can also imagine that certain historians would be very interested in not only the way in which Archani's history is being engaged with by Azhari, but also, as we've talked about, his commentaries and his presentation and examination of the historical process and historical methods in general. But I wonder, with your background and with your interests, how do you look at this text? How does your training inform your reading, your priorities, what interests you, and also what you think the significance of this work is in a broader social context? Yeah, I'm still working that out, but I'm fortunate that in my own training in a PhD program in anthropology, I had supervisors who were very interested in the more humanities side of our discipline. So I was very much brought up in an anthropological tradition that invites bringing literature into our ethnographic analysis. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, I'm very fortunate to have learned a lot about Azhari and his gang of friends who built up the Tikar Pandan community, built up a community of readers. They have writing schools. They publish volumes of short stories written by the students who attend their classes. So I know something about the cultural activist tradition that they're drawing upon that has informed his life's work, you know, since, since he was a college student. So there's absolutely a place, I think, for bringing these insights into history and historiography, historiographic practices. Even though I'm not trained as a historian or a, a complet type person, I do think there are insights here that we can uh, bring to bear on understanding what cultural activism is in Aceh today, what resistance looks like when there's very little room to resist. He grew up during the New Order. There was a brief and violent period. The rest of Indonesia called it the Reform Era, but in Aceh it was called the Referendum Era, and it was the beginning of martial law. So these newfound freedoms of speech were very short-lived in Aceh. Azhari and all of his colleagues of their day, they lived through all of this and they lived through the unfolding of martial law. And then to speak to broader Indonesian concerns, you know, they are witness to the failures of, of the reform movement, reformasi. And, and today we are seeing in Aceh, just uh, the old boss meets the new boss, wherein former GAM Free Aceh movement leaders are now the ones in power. They were not a religious movement by any stretch in the manner of previous rebellions in Aceh. They were very much a secularly oriented movement, and yet there they are fostering the implementation of some radical interpretations of, of Sharia law. They are not allowing other local political parties to contest elections in the same way that they allowed themselves to as a part of the peace agreement. They have taken advantage of special autonomy funds. Aceh has seen very little reduction in poverty despite a massive influx of money uh, since the peace agreement. And we also see the, the wider backsliding of, of democracy in, in Indonesia overall. So there's absolutely a space here, I think, for bringing these insights that Azhari writes into a historical dissimulation, as he might call it, to speak to the narrowing 
space for multiple voices and resistance and contestation. I'm lucky to have his reflections on history in other forums. You know, he's he's written lectures. He's he's talking about what what animates. Uh, this style of writing, why he doesn't want you to call it historical fiction, but I also think he's saying that with a wink in his eye. There's a little of the, bit of the trickster at work here, which is which is what Tikar Pandan has always done. That's the, always been, to, to my mind, the secret of their success. Where other organizations were squashed during during the martial law period, uh, Tikar Pandan was left alone uh, because they spoke in the idiom of culture and. The people in power at the time in Jakarta sort of have this very ossified idea of what culture is, relying on adat frameworks, ideas of custom that that feel very innocuous and and, and innocent. And Tikar Pandan was deliberately playing with that uh, to to launch their critiques. These past five weeks reading this book felt like a bit of a luxury. I often felt, what am I doing? How can I how can I justify this? And yet I do think at the end of the day it will be able to enrich my overall ethnographic insights into what's happening with Aceh's civil society today, where we do see, both during the time of my fieldwork from 2005 to 2012 and in contemporary Aceh today in 2019, we see the metaphor of pressure, not having a space to move. We see a very similar set of metaphors deployed in, in this book as well. People feeling under pressure, uh, not having space to work, the, the difficulty of living in a place like Lamuri where there's always so much violence. There's always another story of betrayal and uh, regime change that no leaders are meant to be trusted, even your own sultan. So I do think that there's some insight there for at least some segments of Achenese society that, that I'll be able to speak to. Thank you so much for not only taking the time today, but also coming over to Sydney and giving us a insight into a really important, I think, and fascinating piece of work. And I hope to hear a lot more about this work and about your work in the future. Great. Thank you so much, Jara. This was a really great conversation. I also want to thank the Southeast Asia Center for giving me this time and space to do this. I couldn't have done it without them. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Center at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Center at soundcloud.com.